Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Andy. It is my privilege to finish off our series this January. We've been going through a series. If you haven't been here, um, I'll invite you in. We're doing a series called Thriving, Not Surviving. And what we've been covering in the past few weeks is different tools, different mindsets, different heart changes that we need to um, consider if we're to really live a life that is thriving and not just surviving. If, you, if you've been around the world long enough and you're outside long enough, there's a lot of people out there that if you were to ask them, they would be honest with you, they would say, do you know, how are you doing? I'm just surviving. And this, this month we've been going through kind of what does it take for a Christian to actually stand up and say, do you know what? I'm actually doing more than just surviving in this life. I'm thriving. I'm living the life that God has called me to live. And I am very, very, very well off. If you were here week one, I, I had the privilege of, of preaching on one of the hardest things. One of the hardest things, I think, is to, to talk to, to Christians, which is a bit ironic. But we talked about forgiveness. And we went around the story of Joseph and followed up a bit on what it means to actually forgive someone with your heart and how many times when we live a life, we hold back and love to hold grudges and love to hold on to things instead of just letting them go um, and giving forgiveness. And so we explored that option. And, and, and week two, we looked at uh, Christine spoke lovely on, on obedience and spoke about the story of Moses and what it, what it really looks like to actually live a life of obedience. And we found that it, it's, not all, it's, it's not as easy as it may seem on the outside looking in. And that obedience costs us something, but that we're able to walk through that. And last week, Mara spoke very well on boldness and what it means to stand up for the, the faith you believe in and to go after what God is calling you to go after with boldness, to trust him in the process, to trust him when you don't see anything beyond. And so all very amazing, inspiring, uplifting, I hope, words for you this January season. And then there's this final one. Dun, dun, dun. I've really felt the Lord, I, I want to give a bit of background. When, I was, when we were putting together this sermon series, I really felt the Lord said, these are, these, are the, these are what I want you to hit. And we got to this last one, and I'm like, Lord, I do not want to preach this. And the Lord was like, you know you're going to preach this, right? And I said, yeah, but I really don't want to preach this. And he goes, tough, <laughs> as God does. And uh, as I, I was speaking with the Lord, I, you know, we, we were going through this, I finally got my head wrapped around this idea of, okay, I'm going to preach this this morning. Okay, that'll be great. And then about two or three weeks ago, probably a bit longer than that to be fair, I get a, a, a chat to, to Richard and Lindsay going, we'd love to do a dedication. So there's all a bunch of new people here. And I'm like, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Because this morning, we're going to be talking about acceptance and surrender. What does it look like to live a life that is full of acceptance and surrender? It's very easy to get very low when we talk about acceptance and surrender. It's easy to get um, down when we talk about acceptance and surrender because it is probably the toughest thing for Christians. It's a, it's a tough thing for anyone anywhere, but for Christians especially, we really, really struggle with acceptance and surrender. Can I be honest? I'm going to put myself in this category as well. This nation struggles with acceptance and surrender. And if you don't think you do, all you need to have happen to you is the biggest obstruction or a moment of suffering or a moment of pain or a no, more, moment of turmoil or a moment when you feel out of control for you to realize, yeah, I really have a problem with accepting 
I have a really big problem with surrendering. And so we're going to explore this today. Now, when I was a kid, I, I tell stories all the time. For those of you who are new here, I tell stories all the time about my G-pop. Now, G-pop is a name that I've given lovingly to my grandfather, my grandfather who's still living. Um, he, he, I've, he's been a, a, a monumental figure in my life growing up, um, a, a man that I've always kind of looked up to. And my G-pop and I, like, I just think my G-pop's the best. And he's better than your grandfather. That's just the way it is. So my, my G-pop used to do this thing when we would go over and visit. He lived about two and a half hours away from where we were at, at the time. My, my, my G-mom and my G-pop. And I would come into the door. And my, my grandfather, he, he's, he, he definitely can't. He'd be laughing if he was hearing the sermon because he definitely can't do this now. But he used to take me, bundle me up, put me in. He'd say, it's a pretzel. And he would say, I won't let go until you surrender. I won't let go until you surrender. And I remember as a little kid, you know, laughing, and he's tickling me and holding me, and I'm just like, I will never surrender. Do you know what I mean? Like, and he keeps holding, he keeps pulling and back and forth. I'll never surrender. Then eventually, I'm nearly wetting myself with laughter, held together, and of course I go, I surrender. I surrender. Now, every once in a while, my grandfather would, would flip, it, flip the script. And he would pretend to be a weakling. And all of a sudden, let the grandson hold him and go, oh, I surrender. And I was thinking of this story when we were talking about surrender. And it's making light of something, but it was interesting because it instilled something in my life very early on. A lot of times when you're a child, children have a heart. I mean, how do I say it this way? When you're a child, it's a much easier understanding to surrender and accept because you're small, you're weaker, you rely on people around you. And when we're kids, kids don't have an issue with acceptance and surrender. Yes, talk to Stacy. We talk about acceptance and surrender with them, no problem. But somewhere along the line, when we grow up, we, we discover, oh, I'm maybe a little bit stronger than I think. Oh, I might have a bit more control than what I think. Or so we think we have control. Until something runs in our path. And then we're let frustrated, confused, hurt, upset. Raise your hand if you'd like to suffer. <laughs> I was waiting for it. There's always one or two cheeky people in the back going like this, and I go, you need to go see somebody. We don't like to suffer. None of us likes to suffer. No one likes pain. And if we like pain, if, you go, if you're like me and like to go to the gym and work out and, and do, you know, do exercises, there's a bit of pain in that, but it's pain that we can control. None of us like to suffer. None of us like to be in places where we can't control what is happening to us. It disturbs us. One of the biggest stumbling blocks for new believers, we, talk, we have an alpha course that goes, is running at the moment great opportunity for people to come and have chats about the Lord. And the biggest struggle for most of these people is, how can I believe in a God that you say is good, but allows suffering to happen? How can I believe in a God that's good if, if suffering is all around me? I don't have to give many examples of suffering, do I? Because every single person who's sitting here has sat here and understands. When I talk about a, a, a time or a period or season where you suffered, that is very acute, we feel that very really. And yet here we are standing, talking about suffering, and we ask this question, why does God allow suffering? 
This has been a challenge for cultures around the world, I would argue, since the beginning of time, really. There's several different views on suffering, and, and I found this interesting when I was researching this, and, and perhaps you find yourself in one of these modes. Some people teach that suffering is a result of karma. It's a result of something that you've done that you now deserve, whether now or in another life. If you're Hindi or, or Buddhist, it, it would be something that could come up with another life. But even now, people still think, oh, you must have done something to deserve that. Others have been taught that the purpose of suffering is to make you stronger for all my gym goers out there. This was a, a, a common thought in Stoic and Greek philosophy. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Anyone ever heard that before? Yeah. How good is that advice when you're actually suffering? <laughs> Not helpful. And some people have avoided suffering altogether. They don't know what to do with it, so we put suffering in this box. And we say, perhaps you've grown up avoiding this discussion, this discussion about suffering, and you carry this attitude. The world is all we have, so let's make the most of it and try to make it a better place. Skip through the flower fields. It's fine. What do we do with suffering? This is a question that I'm sorry to let the cat out of the bag, I can't answer for you. But perhaps we're asking the wrong question. And so this morning, we're gonna go and have a look at, at a character in scripture, probably the best character, best example of suffering. We're gonna be looking at Job this morning. I hear some people going, ooh, and everyone just going, uh. Yes, we're going to start in chapter 1. We'll finish chapter 42 by about 2 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> if you want to turn with me to your Bibles to Job, and similar structure to the way that our other sermon series have been, we're going to kind of go through snapshots of this character and see what this means. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but Job is a unique book of the Bible. Many scholars would put Job in a category of scripture called the wisdom literature. And you, many of you heard of the Psalms and the Proverbs. They would put Job right in there with it. And if you read Job, you realize very quickly, it kind of is like a massive poem trying to be a story. And you'll see here, we, you read the first couple chapters and you're like, okay, this is pretty easy to read. Okay, no problem, no problem. And then you get into about the 15th chapter of arguing back and forth and you go, it's like Shakespeare in school. You're trying to sit here and figure out what is going on. But there's a couple things you have to understand about Job. First and foremost, is Job is set in a place that is neither near or about Israel. Really unique, because most of the scriptures, most of the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, all revolve around Israel in some way, shape, or form. Job is not. None of the characters, no one in, in the book of Job has anything to do with Israel which is interesting. It pulls away from all of that. The, the meaning of the name Job is persecuted. We talk about dedication. How, how would you like to give that dedication? Yes, the meaning of your child's name is persecuted. And 
a lot of people who study the book of Job, and we'll, again, we'll read the first chapter here, get caught up on this one particular instance. And you'll see it in a moment. But there's a setting in Job where you sit here and people have floundered around trying to figure out the theological, theological significance about what is happening. And so if you open in Job's, Job 1, I'm going I'm to start reading here. And it says this. There was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz. I love it when people laugh at my jokes. My wife will tell you though, but even when nobody laughs at my jokes, I laugh at my jokes, so. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Pause right there. Job's loaded. But beyond Job being loaded, Job has done it the right way. There's nothing wrong with Job. And the author wants to make sure that you know that from, from the word go. There's nothing wrong with Job. He is blameless. He hasn't done anything. He's followed the Lord. We'll skip down here into verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has said is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job. And they said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was also speaking, another man came. The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robes, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or, char or charge God with wrong. Did you hear that? And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This story is nearly unbelievable. And people have argued for years, is this story actually true? In fact, that's probably fair to say about most biblical stories. Are these true? Did these really happen? Were these heightened? To be honest, I don't think it matters as much. 
is that it's here and it's for us to see. Because the story of Job is unlike any other in scripture. And it comes down with the biggest Debbie Downer hammer on a lot of our thoughts about the way God operates. And it challenges us. It's like a massive speed hump on the road to understanding Christianity. I mean, think about it. What do we do with this whole sons of God nonsense? God's calling people together. We don't know. People have argued for whatever this is. There's this guy named Satan. Time out, just so in case anyone's aware. Satan is not this red being with horns and a fork-like tongue. Okay? The name Satan in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. The name Satan is actually not the name of a person. It's a title. That's so important to understand from day dot. So, so God is bringing this group of people together. The man called, the man or being called, the accuser steps forward and says, yes, that man that you say loves you, he only loves you because you protect him. He only loves you because he keeps all of, this, all of these things and you, you protect him. Let me go and strip that away from him. And what does God say? Yeah, go do it. Just don't strike him dead. Why would a good God do that? Why would a good God do that? Why would a good God allow suffering to happen? Why would a good God strike down somebody who has done, been nothing but faithful to him and his family? Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Why does a loving and all-powerful God allow suffering in the world? What's wrong with this picture? I mean, think about it. I, I love to use my, my wife in this example. I think she's probably all right with her, with her child, Quinn. If you know my wife, my wife, Rihanna, is a, is a teacher. She's, she sometimes leads up here in worship, for those of you who don't know us. But um, her, her day job is a teacher. And the thing that I love about my wife, my wife is so organized. She thrives out of organization. And she would tell you herself, she loves systems. She loves working and periodically working through systems. And the moment something doesn't quite jive or make sense, she'll go back and look and say, oh, that's where I went wrong because that happened. Oh, that's what happened there. Does anyone else function this way? You're somebody that sits there and goes, yeah, yeah, I, I'm very well organized and so I, I plan everything out. Some of you might be a bit OCD. <laughs> I'm guilty of that in a weird way. You figured out how life works. You've grown up long enough, you've been in the game long enough, you know this is how life works. You do good things, good things happen to you. You do terrible things, it'll come around and bite you in the behind. You treat people poorly, it'll catch up to you. You take care of people, the Lord will bless you. And actually, we find this in Scripture. People who are kind will be rewarded for their kindness. This is Proverbs 11. People who are kind will be rewarded for their kindness, but cruel people will be rewarded with trouble. The work of evil people is all lies, but those who do right will receive a good reward. A person's own folly leads to their ruin, and yet their heart rages against the Lord. 
Wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. So you even look on the outside, you go, God, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. And yet this is what happens. Can I tell you that people who, when they were putting the Bible together, this was probably one of the hardest books of the Bible. This and Esther was one of the hardest books of the Bible to keep in scripture. And so many people wanted to throw it out because it didn't make sense. It was like a massive pothole in this road, all perfect and laid out. Let's continue. So we go through this story. If you read a bit further, you find that that's not the worst that happens. The Satan comes back to God and tells, Job, tells God, Job still is doing this, but I bet you he won't praise you if I strike you down with sickness. And God says, do it, just, just don't kill him. So here we have Job in the worst amount of suffering a human being can imagine. Talk about serious loss. Talk about pain, anguish, true suffering. But it's okay because his friends show up. Everyone, the ones who are laughing are the ones who've read the story. Because friends are supposed to make things all better because we're supposed to come around each other and lift one another up and carry each other's burdens and do all those things. And this is true. Unfortunately, this isn't what these friends are. These friends, there's no Hebrew scholars around, are there? Whew. Because see, if I pronounce these, they're not gonna be the way it's meant to be. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. I will not say that again, because I will say it wrong. These three friends show up, and let's just get a little snapshot of what they say. So this is Eliphaz. He says, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished, and where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity sow in trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. Translation, Job, you must be spoofing. You had to have done something wrong somewhere because there's no reason you would be suffering like this if you hadn't. Let's hear the wise words of Bildad. How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against them, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Translation, Job, perhaps your kids have done something wrong. Maybe there's a curse on your family. All very uplifting, of course. We're in friend two, and I'm already like, why are these people your friends? And Zophar says this to Job, for you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. This is the best one. I mean, this is the way that you take care of your friends. You wretched sinner, it should be worse than this. Awesome. Really, really good. And all the while, Job is sitting here and he is crying as I am innocent. I have done nothing wrong. 
And as he sits in his anguish, he comes to this conclusion. Either one of two things must be true. Either God doesn't run the world according to justice, or God is unjust. Because who would allow this to happen? And if you continue to read all of Job, you see this roller coaster of emotions. I'll give you a couple of the greatest hits. Why has God, God denied me justice and made my life bitter? God attacks me. He tears me up in anger. He gnashes his teeth at me. God destroys the blameless and the wicked, and he mocks the despair of the innocent. What, what hope do the godless have when God takes away their life? It's easy to step away when we're talking about suffering and have a, a philosophical, philosophical discourse with people. I went and studied and, and got my undergraduate in theology. And so I was privy to many of these conversations back and forth. And I've realized one thing. It's really easy to talk about suffering when you're not in it. It's really easy to sit there and say, oh yeah, what well, must be this? Or oh, we'll work out this, it must be this. When you're not sitting there in anguish. Can I tell you, when you're sitting there in pain and you know this well, the last thing you're thinking about is all of that. You're sitting there going, how will I get out of this? I will give anything up to get out of this. I will do anything to get out of this. And we see Job, and it's so easy to kind of look past it as just a case study. But I think for us this morning, we need to take a good hard look at ourselves. And what do we look like when we're suffering? How do we feel when we suffer? Perhaps you're here this morning, you've been following Christ your most of your life, or maybe you gave your life to the Lord later in your life, and you're sitting here and you go, yeah, I understand all this. God's good. I praise him. We worship him. We sing songs. God has been so, such a blessing to my family. But what about that one time when I prayed for that person and they weren't healed? What do we do with that? Or I asked for, for God to heal my, my family member that's been sick with a disease. What do we do with that? Is God unjust? Why does he allow suffering? And you don't have to live long in this world to, to run into that roadblock. Job comes to this crescendo after back and forth of chapters, and I mean chapters, chapters, of back and forth dialogue with his friends. And another friend that we don't have time to mention here, but Job's having this, this discourse. He finally has enough. And this is what he says in Job 31. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job is in a moment where he is down and he goes, God, you won't let me die. I want you to let me die because this is so brutal. This is horrific. What kind of a God, a loving God would do this to me? Since you won't let me die, you better answer me. We've never acted like that before. And sometimes, sometimes, there's quiet and there's silence. And in this story, as you read it, you kind of sit, though, on your edge of your seat, and you go, what is God going to do? 
God answers. And this is what he says. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is that that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Put your big boy pants on. I will question you and make it known to me. Where were you when I laid out the foundation of the the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? And when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who did that? And you see chapters of God reaching out and saying, okay, where were you when this happened? Do you know the depths and depths of the, of the ocean? Do you know every living creature that's in there? Do you know how they produce? Do you know about the wind cycles? Do you know about the chemistry? Do you understand the integral parts of creation? And he takes Job on this whirlwind tour, a virtual tour of all creation, and he spells it out in front of him. What's the point? It's as if God is saying, Job, I see that you're suffering. I see that you're hurting. But you don't have the perspective to see what I see. And you don't know what I see. You will never know all that I see. But will you trust me? He continues. This is God. In Job 41 and 42, he talks about these two big creatures. He says, Behold the behemoth, which I made which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Bold, behold his strength in his loins and his power and his muscles of his belly. He is the first of the works of God. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? What's he saying? In ancient Hebrew, there is an understanding of these two monsters, the behemoth and the Leviathan. And some people try to argue that these are real creatures. But actually, again, it doesn't matter so much that they're real creatures. It's that it's symbolic. Because a, a Hebrew reading this would understand exactly what this means. Because the Leviathan was a massive sea creature in the sea, which was known as chaos and darkness. Because no one could see the depths of the sea. See the sea? You can laugh a little bit. I know it's a very heavy sermon. No one could see this creature, but it, it represented order, disorder, and chaos. And the behemoth was this massive mammoth of a beast. And it symbolized destruction and brokenness. And so here's God saying, I hold both of these in the palm of my hand. I created them and I own them and I alone control them. Who are you to speak of this? And we're stuck here in this moment. And if I'm Job, I'll tell you where I'm at. There's no words. Because if you get a moment of clarity, and sometimes you don't. When you're suffering, sometimes it's just getting the head down. But every once in a while, the Lord will lift your chin up and give you a moment of clarity. And that moment sometimes just looks like this. 
my son, my daughter, I know that you are suffering. But you don't see what I see. And you don't hold what I hold. And here's the harsh reality. Is when suffering enters into our lives as a big roadblock. We don't know what to do with it. Why? Because it reveals something that is so true, but we shudder at the thought of it. You and I are not in control. You and I have absolutely no control. Talk about an encouraging sermon. But as Christians, we need to understand this. As Christ followers, we need to understand this. And this is what Job answers the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered, which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Translation. Lord, I don't know why, but I trust that you're in control. And though this hurts, I have no right to question what you're doing. And so I surrender everything down, all that I have, what's left of me, I give to you and I repent. Acceptance and surrender. The two most crucial things for a Christian to understand. And yet we're really crap at it. Why does God allow suffering? We don't get an answer. The closest thing we get to an answer is, your mind cannot fathom why I do what I do. What we do know is that God is just and that God is good. Now, people have a problem with that but it's because when we think of justice, it's justice to us. Who's the one who determines what's just? Not me. You don't want me running the world. It wouldn't last more than a second. God is good. What is good? It's not good applied to what I am because what I think might be good might be terrible for somebody else. He's the one who defines that, not me. Now, what does God do? And if you've read the story of Job, this is what he does. Two things. He rebukes the friends who are speaking in folly. You can read it yourself. It's a poetic way of saying your friends don't have a clue what they're talking about and you actually owe Job an apology. Because I am just, and he did nothing wrong. And then God restores twice, and he actually goes through twice what Job lost. I always read that story, and I thought it interesting. 
Because I sit here now as a, with a daughter. If I lost her, but then God gave me two new kids, would I still feel whole? No. I'd still be marked. But I would have to walk that, that period with me and the Lord, and I would have to say, God, I don't understand, but I accept that you are good, and I give my daughter or whoever that is over to you because you know what you're doing, and I don't. And I surrender to the fact that you are in control. It's a hard message. It's a tough message. But we have hope. And our hope is this. That suffering, though a part of our lives, is actually at the heart of the Christian story. Jesus came to suffer in the worst imaginable way. God came down from heaven, put flesh on, and suffered in the worst way imaginable. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The late Tim Keller put it this way. Jesus could save others only because he did not save himself. You and I get to walk in the victory that we've sang about of walking with Christ. What does it look like to follow Christ? Well, he says it. He, in Matthew 16, he says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Gareth, can I ask for you to just come up and just play acoustic here? Acceptance and surrender. We surrender that the God of all the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was also the suffering servant. And so when we suffer, when we are hurting, when we are broken, all we need to do is recognize that we are one that never alone. And two, the man, Jesus, who will lead us out of this is the very man that went through it. Why does suffering happen? I don't know. And to be honest, I'm tired listening to churches pretend they know the answer because they don't. I'm tired of giving up examples and making people feel like trash when they come up and say, oh, you didn't pray hard enough. You didn't have faith enough for that. No. God gives and takes away, but my heart will choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's our cry today. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even if it's broken, even if you don't see the ends, walking a life as a follower of Jesus says, do you know what? There may be suffering in this life, 
but I walk the path that my Savior walked to gain the victory that he bought for me. Where there will be a day where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more hurting. We suffer here recognizing that there's an eternity of joy and hope and prosper for all of us. That does not mean that we don't pray for people who are sick. That does not mean we don't have faith for people to be healed. That does not mean that we don't stand in the gap for our sons, our daughters, our friends, our loved ones that are hurting and are broken because Jesus calls us to do those things. And we walk in obedience doing that. And in boldness, doing that. And we lay down our hearts and we lay down the, the brokenness that we've held against somebody. We forgive. But in order for you to truly forgive, you need to accept that it may not turn out the way you want it to and surrender that there is a God who is in absolute control and he is good. And I wanna close with this story. I know we're out of time and Stacy and I can fight later. That's fine. Because <laughs> I think this is important. It's coming up to the, uh, about a year ago. And some of you know this story, some of you don't. My wife and I had been fighting for years to try and have a child. And it just, it just wasn't working. We, had, we went to every prayer thing. We went to Bethel. We went everywhere. It wasn't happening. And then we went IVF way. We went the medical way. And it was funny because it was sitting here and it was going, we truly felt going this way that the Lord had told us to go that direction. Because he can heal in different ways. It doesn't have to just be in a miracle just in that moment. So we went through IVF, we went the implantation and we fell pregnant on the first time. our miracle. And a few weeks and months went by and I'll never forget. I was sitting here, it was a night service and I got a call. There's bleeding. And I remember going on and coming home and the, the fear and the grips my heart and my soul and I just remember my, my wife's words. I think we lost them. I think we lost them. Called people we trust, medical people. They confirmed. And I never felt a crash so hard in my entire life. You know what we did? We sat and we watched <laughs> David Attenborough on the TV because the only thing that was just drone out and it was an out-of-body experience and we sat there in brokenness and I had to call my family, I had to call my friends, I had to say, I'm so sorry, this, this hasn't happened and I don't, you know, I don't know why, I'm broken. And I remember sitting up in that bedroom and I, <laughs> all I felt was, it was as if somebody would come right beside you and just whisper something into your ear. 
And I don't remember the, t- the date. I don't remember any of the times. I just remember this is, what, this is what I heard. It was as if an audible voice spoken and said, this is your Friday. Your Sunday isn't here yet, but your Sunday is coming. And I remember sitting up in bed and I just said, God, you could not be so cruel. Don't give me hope. Don't give me this. And he said this, he said, do you trust me? So we went in down to the IVF clinic, my wife and I looking like a bunch of homeless bums, not having slept, no makeup, no nothing. They looked at us and they went, what is what has happened? And we told them the story. We told them this stuff. And they, they looked at us kind of with this concern in our eyes and said, that probably is the case, but we should do a scan anyway. And I remember sitting my wife up on the bed and she is sobbing. Doesn't want to look at the screen. And the nurse and the doctor turn the screen towards us and I'm just sitting there holding her, not knowing what to do. And I look across and all of a sudden I see this face that goes, And what should have been a very quick instant, yes, the baby is gone, went from this face of obscure curiosity and confusion and bewilderment. As the doctor looked at me and said, I don't know how, I don't know why, but there's nothing wrong with your baby girl. There wasn't even a mark on the embryo. Any type of bleeding, a doctor will tell you. There will be a mark. There will be something that was there to show. Nothing. My baby girl. I know know that some of you may have a story and it might have gone the other way. And I can say genuineness in my heart. I've been there in that pain and that sorrow. And the only thing that brought me through it is that no matter what the doctor would have said was the fact that Jesus just said, I am here. I am here. I am here. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And I know kids are coming down and they have to go and, and you could very easily just run off and do things. I know there, there's baby dedication. There's people here. I understand that. But This is my heart for us, church. Can we learn to surrender that we don't know why things happen, but that we trust in a God and a King who does and who's good. And in the land that for so many years shouted no surrender, we would be a people that said, I will surrender everything at the foot of my Jesus. I will surrender everything at the foot of my God and my King. So this is what I want to do. And I know people have to go and that's fine. If you're a member of the prayer team, I want you to come up and come up to the front here. Though I don't necessarily know if you need prayer, but if you do need prayer, there's, there are people here that would love to stand in the gap and pray for you. If there's, if there's healing that you need in your body, we want to believe that Jesus who can heal and does heal will heal. But if you're sitting here in a place and you're going, I've been holding on to this for so long and I don't know what to do. I want to encourage you. It's really, really simple. I want you to have a look. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to have a look at Jesus. I want you to have a look at his face. And I want want you to say, I give it to you. 
that person that I've lost, that's been broken, that's broken me, I give them to you because I trust that you know what to do with that better than me. That hurt that I feel, that cancer that I have, that sickness, that disease that I have, it is mine. I have it in my body, but I give it to you. I lay down the concerns. I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know what's gonna happen with my family. I don't know what's gonna happen with anything. I lay the worry down to you. I surrender it at your feet. And I accept that you are in control and that you will do what you think is best, even if I don't agree with you. That's the call. Person who follows Jesus. Why don't you stand with me? Yeah, Jesus, we love you and we worship you and we're so thankful for the times that we can jump and scream for joy and sing praises and lift up your name because it is worthy to be praised and you are good and you are perfect in every way. But God, we ask that you would, you would soften our hearts that we might be able to surrender the things that we've been holding on to control for far too long. We trust you today to release them to you and to give them to you. Not to pick them back up again, but to leave them there and know that you will take them where you wanna go, that you will do what you need to do, that you will move in the way that you need to move. And Lord, that we would walk a life that is surrendered to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, knowing that you're good and that your plans are better than ours. So Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning. You would bless us. You would guide us. You would put a hedge of protection around our families. And even in the moments when, when brokenness enters in and suffering enters in and pain enters in, that you would be right there on our shoulder just whispering, will you trust me? I'm here, will you trust me? Jesus, we give it all to you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. There's still gonna be people here if you need prayer. The kids have already been released down here, but if you haven't collected your kids, please go up to see that. That is the, the end of our, our, our service. We love you.